0: From WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana, I'm Kate Young, and this is Earth Eats.
1: One of the things you'll notice about working with spelt is that it comes together immediately, much more quickly than wheat
0: does. Our guest today is Eric Shedler of Muddy Fork Bakery, and he's teaching us how to make pita bread using stone ground spelt flour. And to fill that pita pocket, he'll also share his recipe for falafel. Christina Stella of Harvest Public Media explains why corn needs to sleep. Josephine McRobbie has a conversation with the official chef for a state governor, and we talk with Professor Andrea Wiley about the complications surrounding gluten. All of that just ahead in the next hour here on Earth Eats. Stay with us.
2: EarthEats is produced from the campus of Indiana University in Bloomington, Indiana. We wish to acknowledge and honor the indigenous communities native to this region and recognize that Indiana University Bloomington is built on indigenous homelands and resources. We recognize the Miami, Delaware, Pottawatomie, and Shawnee people as past, present, and future caretakers of this land.
0: When the governor and first lady of North Carolina had an opening for a chef at the state's executive mansion, they wanted more than the promise of a great meal. In Ryan McGuire, they found an advocate for farm-to-table eating, improved child nutrition, and the understanding of food as a connector. Inauguration Week is a good time to give a second listen to this conversation with producer Josephine McRobbie and a governor's chef. Ryan McGuire.
3: North Carolina is ranked one of the most food insecure states in the nation, with children and seniors even more vulnerable to malnutrition and scarcity of resources. The state's Governor Roy Cooper and First Lady Kristin Cooper have been involved with organizations like No Child Hungry since the beginning of Cooper's administration. And they have a unique ally in the chef at the state's executive mansion. I'm standing with Chef Ryan McGuire at Raleigh City Farm, where the chef often puts on community-centered events. Recently, it was teaching cooking and gardening to the local Salvation Army after-school program.
4: We did some uh, some knife skills and, and safety practices, and um, we, we had uh, some produce that was uh, given from the farm here that we utilized in the cooking classes.
3: At the Executive Mansion, Chef McGuire manages a staff who do everything from tending a garden to working front of house for events to running the kitchen.
4: I love um exploring different uh, types of cuisine, so I often try, try to fit some, you know, different flavors in there. And the governor's been great, he's very open-minded, and so he, he has allowed me pretty much free reign on what I like to cook, which is fantastic. I, 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 like, I like that freedom. <laughs> the people's house, as the governor calls it. So we have events that happen there with nonprofits and and other organizations that come in.
3: Chef McGuire also represents his role around the region. Last summer, he visited the local food bank with the First Lady as part of the Stop Summer Hunger Initiative, where he did a recipe demonstration that used only food bank ingredients to make an Asian-inspired meatball dish. In 2019, he was a participant in Durham Bowls, where local chefs team up with school cafeteria workers to develop fresh recipes for the public school system. <music> Chef McGuire grew up in the neighborhood-centric Buffalo, New York, the grandson of a Sicilian immigrant.
4: You go to one part of town for your Italian sausage, you go to one part of town for your Polish sausage, your 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 kibasa, and your um your pierogies, and, you know, you have these little pockets of, of uh, people that live in these different different areas.
3: His most memorable food experiences were the ones that were challenging on the palate, like eating pasta with sardines as part of the St. Joseph's Catholic Feast Day. But later he learned in his child nutrition work that it can take a person a dozen times eating a food to develop a taste for it, and that it can be worth the struggle.
4: It always brings me back to to you know grandma's house or something if I have a, a taste of that sauce that she would make. So it's something that I feel is extremely important to continue because it's the only th- real thing I can grasp onto you know and try to pass on to my family. So uh, <clears throat> we had a we had a really nice St. Joseph's Day last year with friends and family, um, and I hope to do that continue that uh, tradition. I got into the culinary world sort of by mistake, just because it's usually one of the first jobs you can get as a, as a teenager. And I started washing dishes at uh, Kentucky Fried Chicken.
3: Later, Chef McGuire ended up getting his first real restaurant gig when he was called back by accident for a job interview.
4: And the guy thought I was someone else, <laughs> uh, so they called me in. Um, and since I was there, they kind of put me to work. And I started working at this really neat bistro and started learning more about About cooking, from a couple of the chefs that were there.
3: After completing culinary school and working in restaurants in Manhattan, he took a job as a cook and educator at the Virgin Islands
4: Sustainable Farms Institute. The types of fruits and vegetables that that you can grow there was phenomenal. You know, we had uh, pineapples and different types of bananas and um, all all kinds of really neat fruits. You know, of course, mango and avocados and um, star fruit, carambola. there was a soursop it was just it was pretty cool
3: in north carolina he worked at watts grocery an award-winning farm-to-table restaurant owned by amy turnquist
4: you know she would go down to the carborough farmer's market and just stuff her car with full of vegetables and bring it back to the restaurant we didn't even really need it i think she just she just loved uh supporting the farmers there and you know and telling us to try to find a use for it and um, so it was neat to be able to learn s- some of the local growers and suppliers in the area that way.
3: This interest in food systems led him to a position at Chartwells, a K-12
4: nutrition strategy company working with the local schools. It's such a beast of a system, trying to figure out how to, how to make food delicious and, and healthy and affordable for, for kids. When we first got there, it was just a couple of small steps to improve, I think, improve some of the food was, we're doing things like uh, taking the friars out of the schools. The, the company that was there before was really not so concerned with uh, what they call a reimbursable meal. They were just selling a la carte items. Um, the district wanted to change that. So that they wanted to sell more of a meal and, and, and incentivize us by doing that as opposed to doing the a la carte. So, so the students um, would have a full meal, not just uh, you know chicken wings or, or french fries.
3: Nowadays, Chef McGuire is most interested in the concept of gastro diplomacy. It's practiced by groups like the Bronx's Ghetto Gastro, who use the borough's food culture to foster dialogue along social, economic, or geographic borders. Gastro diplomacy can be boiled down to that old saying: "The easiest way to someone's heart is through their stomach."
4: It can be pretty simple, though. Um, it, it's not. It can be as as, as much as uh, you know, having a group of people um, coming to the Executive Mansion, for example, that. Uh, are there for a meeting, and and maybe they are fed a a nice meal, uh, and it kind of opens their mind a little bit, and and, and it might open them up a little bit more to uh, a a better conversation. And uh, I'm I'm all for that.
0: That was Earth Eats producer Josephine McRobbie speaking with Chef Ryan McGuire. Find more at eartheats.org. Many Great Plains farmers saw abnormally warm and dry weather last season. That may make you think of withered crops and cracked soils, but those conditions can pose another risk for plants. Hotter nighttime temperatures. And as Harvest Public Media's Christina Stella reports, that's expected to become an ongoing problem for crops that are just trying to get some sleep. Some farmers say that if you
5: listen to their cornfields closely enough, you might hear more than ears of corn rustling in the wind. You could catch the sound of it growing. There are recordings, like this one, taken by agronomists at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. Farmers pray every year for conditions that will make their crops sing like that. Enough moisture, proper sun, no bad weather. In 2020, On top of the year's many problems, a stubborn enemy emerged for farmers across the Great Plains. Drought. Dry conditions can hurt a crop's yield by interrupting photosynthesis. Air plus water plus sunlight equals corn. But drought conditions can also go hand in hand with warmer weather. Too little or too much heat at the wrong time can doom a farmer's field. Brian Fuchs, a climatologist at the U.S. National Drought Center, says both can arise in a heartbeat.
3: For the most part, the timing of that warmth is really key to how not only producers themselves deal with it, but how the plants and the crops that they're trying to grow deal with it.
5: Corn is especially picky about nighttime temperatures early in its life. If just a few evenings at the start of the growing season are hotter than 50 degrees, that can trigger a cascade of problems, including the plant losing essential carbon and water. Dr. Walid Sadok, an agronomist at the University of Minnesota, says the effect is similar to getting a bad night's sleep, which can stunt the plant's growth.
2: When you have that increase in nighttime temperature, the plant does not recover well
5: in the following day. It's kind of dizzy. Climate change is expected to make drought, heat waves, and warm nighttime temperatures more common in coming decades. And while they don't always go hand in hand, a warmer world could make drought worse in the future. There is no doubt that frequency of those extreme events is on the rise. We need to make crops more resilient to stresses like drought, high temperature, high nighttime temperature, fast enough to fulfill the need of a growing population. The search for more resilient plants begins in virtual reality with crop modeling. Sadoke uses computer models to test how changing a plant's genes would impact its growth. It's sort of similar to playing a really complicated video game. It's all about trial and error. Plants like corn have about 12,000 more genes than humans, and changing them to make the crop tougher against, say, high heat, could make it weaker to something else like drought. What we are discovering is that you can improve a variety to be more tolerant in one environment, but it could be really a loser in another environment. While there's still a lot of work ahead to create enough varieties for farmers to use globally, Sadok says scientists are making good progress. Yet stronger plants alone will not save farmers. Tala Awada, a plant ecophysiologist at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, says they need a bigger toolkit including better resource management.
0: You can go with using sensing technologies to drive management practices, such as when you put your nutrients, when you water, and so all of it is technology-driven and sensing-driven.
5: The technology is there. Whether it's accessible to farmers is another question. She says that will drive whether more people invest in equipment that reduces their risk.
0: All these technological advancements and innovations that are driving many of the solutions, but they have to be two things, affordable and manageable.
5: Farming has always been risky, but to prepare for a changing climate, Awada says scientists will keep developing tools to help farmers counter uncertainty. But those will take time to perfect, and for some solutions, farmers might just have to wait. Christina Stella, Harvest Public Media.
0: Harvest Public Media reports on food and farming in the heartland. Find more from this reporting collective at harvestpublicmedia.org. Next, we have a story from 2019, when producer Alex Chambers still graced the Earth Eats staff.
6: So, Kate, you eat gluten. Uh, yeah. I know this partly because you make incredible pies.
0: Yeah, pie.
6: And also, um, you may remember that we used to teach a bread class together.
0: That's right. Can't make bread without gluten.
6: Nope, you can't. Do you know a lot of people who are avoiding gluten?
0: Yes, a lot of people.
6: It's like, it's it's just kind of crazy to me how many people I know who are avoiding it. My mom, my brother. I was in New York a couple of weeks ago and uh, visiting with a couple of childhood friends, and both of them are avoiding it. One of them said to me, you remember how I used to be lactose intolerant? I was like, yeah, I actually do remember that. He was like, it turns out I got tests a while back and I'm actually gluten intolerant, not lactose intolerant.
0: Oh, wow. Well, it can be hard when you're a baker and your friends and family don't eat
6: gluten. It's a real bummer. Yeah, Although it's probably more of a bummer for the people who can't eat it.
0: Yeah, and, and I do wonder what's going on with that, just the increase.
6: Yeah, I know. It's really interesting. Um, I've been wanting to figure it out, too. So I talked with Andrea Wiley, who's been on the show before, and Krista Worrell, who's collaborating with her to try to answer that question.
0: Great. What'd they find out?
6: It's complicated. I figured. Yeah. So, okay. so there's celiac disease, which is an immune reaction to gluten, uh, affects about 1% of the population. But you don't have to have celiac, of course, to have a problem with wheat. Enough people have been feeling better without wheat that sales of gluten-free products almost quadrupled between 2011 and 2015. So many people are avoiding gluten that some doctors have started warning their patients against a gluten-free diet if they don't have celiac, because sometimes it means replacing whole grains with more highly refined starches like potatoes and tapioca and rice.
0: Yeah, I could see that.
6: Yeah, but other people feel like those doctors are discounting their own experiences of feeling better off of wheat. So that's what I was trying to understand when I invited Krista and Andrea into the studio. So if you could each just start out by introducing yourselves.
7: I'll start. My name is Krista Vorl, and I'm a senior at IU and a Cox Research Scholar, and I've been working with Dr. Wiley now. This will be my fourth year on our gluten project. Great.
8: Oh, yeah. So I'm Andrea Wiley. I'm a professor of anthropology uh, here at IU. I am a biological anthropologist, so I'm interested in human evolution and human biological variation. My particular interests are in the role that diet has played in shaping human evolution and human variation.
6: Andrea Wiley's been on Earth Eats before, talking about her research on milk. But whereas the main problem with milk is lactose intolerance, it seems to be more complicated with wheat.
8: There's a spectrum of wheat intolerances, and there are three kind of major categories. There's celiac disease, which is like an autoimmune disease. So when you consume gluten, your immune system essentially starts to attack the cells of your small intestine, and eventually it destroys them. So that is one end of the spectrum. There's wheat allergy as well, which is also immunologically driven, but it is mediated by a different part of the immune system, the IgE system. And it's this mechanism is similar to any kind of food allergy. And that's not particularly common. It's more common among kids, as are most food allergies. And then there's this other category that is called non-celiac gluten sensitivity.
7: <laughs> yes. Some researchers have also considered adapting the name to non-celiac wheat sensitivity But you can also kind of run into problems there because wheat is not the only gluten-containing grain. Mm -hmm. Also popular gluten-containing grains are barley and rye. So we've seen
6: that celiac itself has actually increased. Mm-hmm. And it's not just due to better diagnosis. There was that study where they took the blood samples, mm-hmm. I think, From the right? the army recruits. The yeah, army recruits. Yeah. They were taken in, what, the 50s? Mm-hmm. And saw that the rates of celiac in, in their blood samples was way lower mm-hmm. than what we're finding in similar populations exactly. now. So celiac is on the rise.
7: Well, when you look at celiac on its own, and for example, in that study of army recruits, it can seem really alarming. But when you look at it within the context of other autoimmune diseases, other autoimmune diseases are also on the rise at the same or similar rates mm-hmm. as celiac disease. Yeah, well, or at least it's, it's it's part
8: of the it's, package, right. right?
7: So the large, the question then becomes, why are autoimmune diseases yes. in general
8: on the rise? And you know there are a number of hypotheses for that. I would say, you know, thinking about more of the cultural stuff as well, I think it has to be put in the context of interest in low-carb diets, for mm-hmm. one thing, that begin kind of in the 80s and 90s with Atkins at the start where, you know, you're really eliminating things like bread from your diet. And some people report great success in removing carbohydrates from their diet. And now that has kind of transformed into the keto diet. And, and then, of course, there's a paleo diet. And all these diets would eschew wheat, right, or grains of most kinds. And there's probably some conflation in people's minds about gluten and carbohydrates, right, that, oh, well, bread has is carbohydrates, and oh, I've also heard it's got gluten in it. And so collectively, those things Mm. become things that you can eliminate from your diet if you're trying to achieve weight loss, for example.
6: The number of people avoiding gluten has turned out to be a big market opportunity. I mentioned to Andrea and Krista that by 2020, the sales of gluten-free products are projected to be almost $24 billion.
8: Yeah, that seems an incomprehensible number. So Mm. clearly, someone's buying them. (laughs) Right. Whether they are self-diagnosed as yeah. or otherwise diagnosed as gluten-sensitive, perhaps there is a larger sense that, hmm, maybe gluten is something to be avoided. And hence, you know, given a choice between two products, uh, one that doesn't have the gluten-free label and <laughs> one that does, I choose the gluten-free one because it carries some kind of health halo, and so it must be. I didn't know that gluten was bad, but if it doesn't have it, then that seems good. It's not an uncommon marketing ploy when it comes to food labeling.
6: Yeah, I mean, that health halo goes beyond food. I um, The shampoo that I use is like a sort of eco-friendly shampoo, uh-huh. and it's gluten-free also, apparently. <laughs>
8: <laughs> yeah, so it's, you know, clearly gluten has some cultural currency right now and some real currency. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, one of the things the weed industry says is, and I, this is true in my uh, limited experience is that gluten-free products are more expensive. And so we want to be careful. You know, there are probably lots of people out there consuming gluten-free foods who don't need to be. So they're essentially wasting their money. Again, that's that's the wheat industry's line in this. Obviously, they have an interest in, in minimizing this and eager to see this trend perhaps go away.
6: But while the popularity of gluten-free diets suggests it's just the latest diet fad, a lot of people are experiencing discomfort, and researchers are trying to figure out why. One of those questions is whether the problem is the gluten itself or something else.
8: Yeah, so there are other components of wheat that people seem to be sensitive to as well. There are enzymes in wheat that seem to trigger intolerant symptoms. There are also these... Carbohydrates as well. (laughs) Yeah, there's this whole category of, what would you call them, food constituents called FODMAPs, which are basically sugar molecules of varying sizes and complexity.
6: FODMAP, by the way, stands for fermentable oligosaccharides, disaccharides, monosaccharides, and polyols, in case you were wondering. Okay, back to Andrea.
8: And wheat has a number of those as well. And FODMAPs have been shown to have some of the same symptomatology as as gluten intolerance. And there are a number of studies where if you take people who say they're gluten intolerant and reduce their FODMAP consumption, that they actually get better, even when you reintroduce gluten. So there is some confusion about whether gluten is... It it surely is, but is it the only constituent of wheat That is bothersome. And
6: another reason it's hard to figure out whether it's gluten or FODMAPs or something else is that the only way to figure out whether someone has non-celiac gluten sensitivity is by how they report their symptoms.
8: Right now, there is no biomarker for non-celiac gluten sensitivity. So they, you know, that is one of the the key problems in the field right now is there's no established marker for it. So you. It's really all done by well. If you take gluten out of someone's diet, do they report feeling better? And then it becomes very important to run, you know, a double-blind placebo study so that people aren't simply reporting. Well, yeah, I removed gluten and Mm -hmm. I'm feeling great. And those studies that have kind of looked at FODMAPs versus gluten in a blinded way have found, in some cases, that the FODMAPs are the problem and the when people are eating gluten and not knowing it they're actually doing okay. For some studies, other studies show the opposite. And so the the evidence isn't all converging <laughs> at this <laughs> point, which makes for a very messy kind of science right now.
6: And it's not just the hard science that's making it complicated.
8: A strand of this too is this like trust in science and skepticism of science, mm-hmm, and I think is. we're at a particular moment in our history where, you know, that is really kind of coming to a head. And I always find it kind of interesting, you know, in in a political sense, I have many colleagues who will defend science and its benefits against the current (laughs) skepticism, but have their own kind of, I think, again, we are our own experiments. And so in my, like, I have this particular experience It doesn't match up with the science. And so I, what am I trying to say here? I privilege my own experience over the science. And that's fair in some respect. Science only tells you about probabilities of things. They don't tell you about experiments of one. (laughs) But, and I think gluten is a good example where, you know, skepticism and science kind of ride Skepticism of the science, skepticism of this as a real phenomenon, are present with science trying to figure out what this is.
6: In other words, it's really hard to tease out the cultural aspects of this from the biological ones. Are we thinking we're feeling better because we've been hearing for decades that carbs are bad for us? Is there something about our immune systems that are having more trouble dealing with wheat than we used to? Or is there something different about the wheat itself? There's good evidence for all of these things, even though they seem like they would cancel each other out. What's to be done? Well, one thing I would say is don't pay too much attention to individual studies. As Andrea pointed out, they're pretty quick to contradict each other. When you can, eat whole grains. There's consensus on that. As for wheat and gluten and FODMAPs, do what works for you. The research is probably going to converge eventually. The scientists and the anthropologists are on it. For Earth Eats, I'm Alex Chambers.
0: That story was produced by Alex Chambers in 2019. Alex's latest project, The Age of Humans, can be found wherever you get your podcasts. Find a link at eartheats.org. Young, this is Earth Eats. Next, we have a baking session with Eric Shedler of Muddy Fork Bakery. Muddy Fork is a local artisan bakery with a wood-fired brick oven. They make crusty loaves of bread, flaky croissants, and soft pretzels. Eric is a regular guest here on Earth Eats. He's generous with his expertise in the kitchen, and this week, he'll be teaching us how to make pita bread with spelt flour. He walks us through the steps of making the dough and how to bake the pitas for that signature pocket. This story is from 2019 when I had the chance to visit with Eric Shedler in their commercial kitchen on their property located on a country road a few miles east of town.
1: Today we're gonna make some spelt pita. You can make pita with all kinds of flour, you probably typically think of mostly white flour in a pita, but if you are interested in whole grains, pita is a great way to try out using spelt. Spelt can be a little trickier to work with than wheat. Spelt is a wheat family grain, it's an ancient grain, and it has a little bit of a different dough quality to it that actually lends itself really nicely to being used in pita, pizza dough, flatbreads, because it has a great ability to stretch. It just stretches really easily without ripping. So it makes it easy to stretch things out like pita and pizza dough. It also has a quality in the finished bread or flatbread, where it's a very soft, sort of spongy texture, which I think is great for pita. So we're gonna make whole grain spelt pitas today.
0: Okay, we're gonna pause here for a quick tour through a few of the wheat types that Muddy Fork uses in their weekly baking.
1: So I have three different kinds of wheat here. I have turkey red wheat, which is an heirloom wheat from the 19th century that was brought to Kansas by Mennonites from emigrating from the Ukraine. And at one time, it was the most popular wheat, most widely grown wheat in the U.S. It almost disappeared and it's sort of having a revival among bakers. So that's the turkey red wheat is the wheat that we use in our whole wheat breads. And it looks like a typical hard red wheat. Turkey red is a winter wheat. As a hard red wheat, it's got sort of small reddish brownish looking grains. And when we compare that with the ancient grains, those are quite a bit larger. The spelt is a similar color to the wheat red wheats. It's got that reddish brownish color, but it's a lot softer than the turkey red wheat. So we can take a grain and that's the turkey red. It goes crunch and if you take a grain of spelt, it's it's a lot easier to chew even though it's bigger. (laughs) (laughs) And that makes it unique because among modern wheats, the soft wheats are lower in protein than the hard wheats and they are softer to chew which is why they're called soft wheats. But the spelt is actually a high protein grain but it's got a soft texture to it. It is has its own distinct lineage because it's an ancient grain, and it has, as we've discussed, it has a different quality to the gluten that makes the dough feel different and behave differently. Now we get to the kamut, which is the biggest grain, and it's golden in color. It's also golden all the way through, whereas the other, the spelt and the and the red wheat are only red on the bran, but once you cut them open, they're white inside. Mm -hmm. This is gold all the way through. And it's related to semolina, which also has that quality of being golden all the way through. The kamut is also very high in protein and iron too, I think. And it's really hard, super hard.
0: Was that your tooth or the grain? <laughs> I'm
1: not sure. Let me figure out.
0: <laughs> so now back to the spelt pita dough.
1: And this is freshly milled spelt off of our stone mill. Which, if you if you like our Muddy Fork flour, you can find it at Blooming Foods. If You're into making bread. You may have a little tabletop grain mill at home and you can mill your own spelt. All right, so we're going to start with water and yeast. Um, This recipe is going to make six four-ounce pitas. And I only bake bread doughs by mix and make bread by weight, uh, which is very typical in bakeries. It's not as typical in the U.S. for home cooks to use a scale, but it's easier and more precise than measuring especially when you get to big quantities, you gotta measure 20, 50 cups of flour would be ridiculous. So we weigh everything. So we're gonna get 315 grams of water. And then we'll put the yeast in the water for just a minute to let it dissolve. Okay, so we want a gram and a half of yeast. There's a simple rule about weight conversions with the dry yeast and that is a quarter teaspoon is about a gram. Our tablespoon is about 10 to 12 grams. So for a gram and a half, we're going to do a quarter teaspoon, which is one gram, and then a half of that quarter teaspoon. I'm impatiently whisking the yeast to get it dissolved a little faster. Yeast is dissolved. Now we're going to add the other two ingredients, which is the spelt flour and the salt. We want 375 grams of spelt. So spelt's pretty thirsty flour. And you can see there's only a little bit more flour than water in this dough. We can get into baker's math, but the basic idea of how professional bakers describe their recipes is by percentages so that it can be scaled to any particular amounts. So in this recipe, if you count flour as hundred parts, then the water is 84 parts to that. So we would say this dough has 84% hydration. Everything is measured against the flour. Flour always counts as 100%. And the salt. Six grams of salt, which is about a teaspoon and a third. See how close that is. I'm using a teaspoon and the scale at the same time. I think closer to a teaspoon and a quarter get yourself a spoon, and stir it up. If you've made bread dough from wheat flours before, then one of the things you'll notice about working with spelt is that it comes together immediately, much more quickly than wheat does. Mm -hmm. It just has this, um, the gluten has a different quality to it, where it just uh, becomes cohesive right away. And then it becomes very extensible as it ferments. And when I say extensible, I mean the, the quality of stretching out, flattening out. If you were to take a, a ball of spelt dough and a ball of wheat dough and put them on the table, the spelt, you'd like watch it spread out before your eyes in a way that the wheat doesn't. And I did what I could with my mixing spoon. And now I'm sticking my hands in here to incorporate this flour.
0: It doesn't look that sticky.
1: It's wet, but it's not that sticky.
0: He's basically pulling a piece of the dough over the top and kind of pushing it in and spinning the bowl around as he does so.
1: (laughs) Yeah, so I like to knead and mix the dough in the bowl rather than on the table, which is sort of a more old-fashioned way to Need your dough because then you keep adding more and more flour as you're working it on the table. All right, that's it. That's our spelt pita dough. We're just gonna set it over on the other side of the room and let it sit for a few hours. We'll come back and give it a few folds, um, during that time, <clears throat> which helps build strength in the dough. And that looks really the same as my mixing, uh, technique where I'm taking a little piece of dough from the edge of the bowl Pushing it down in the middle, spinning the bowl a little bit, pulling another piece. And when I talk about folding dough, we're just going to go around the whole circumference once or twice. And that's a fold.
0: So the dough has been mixed. Now it needs to ferment. When we come back, we'll divide the dough and get it ready to shape for the pitas. I'm Kate Young, this is Earth Eats, and we're back with Eric Shedler of Muddy Fork Bakery. We're making pita bread today using Muddy Fork's freshly ground spelt flour.
1: Here we have pita dough, which has been going for a few hours. It's very puffy. It has a nice, grainy, fermenty smell to it. It's a little sticky looking. I'll put some flour on the table and pull it out with my bowl scraper maybe a little heavier on the flour than some of the other ones, because it's a wetter dough. And we are gonna cut this into four ounce pieces for our pitas. I wanna just make sure it's not stuck to the table, so I'm gonna slide it around on some flour, let it pick up a little bit of that on the bottom side. And then I'll cut with my bench scraper.
0: If you're not familiar with a bench scraper, it's an essential tool for many bakers. It's basically a wide flat blade a rectangle with a handle running the length of one side of the rectangle. And it's not a terribly sharp blade. It's less like a knife and more like a metal spatula. And it's great for cutting dough, scraping your work surface, and moving pieces of dough around on your table or countertop. It's also sometimes called a bench knife. Eric is using it to divide the dough
1: got our six little balls there and now we're gonna um well the six little lumps now we're gonna make them into balls and we're gonna make them as tight as we can and the more evenly tight you can make the balls the more likely it is that they'll puff up the way you want them to so we're gonna use a little flour and we're gonna use the same kind of motion we've used before where we pull the dough from the outside to the middle but now it's on the tabletop instead of in the bowl and when you get to the end there's this tightening motion you can do by pushing the seam against the table and rotating and sort of tugging that dough up and inside if you did this all day you'd do one with each hand <laughs> you want to get a little traction with your dough on the table so see That's the sound of the dough sliding on the table
0: This can be difficult to explain without seeing it, but he's basically holding the small piece of dough in his hand and pushing it slightly against the table while rotating the ball. He's tucking the bottom of the dough in and under and creating a nice taut surface across the top of the dough ball.
1: Running out of flour, so i put a little more down here.
0: It takes some practice to get this part down.
1: All right, there we got six nice little round balls of spelt dough to make pitas.
0: Normally, Eric would bake the pitas in their brick oven in the bakery.
1: Which is seven and a half feet deep and five feet wide, and it's a little bit cool right now because we have a weekly heating and baking cycle, and the oven just retains heat for the whole week. When we're finished heating it on Friday night, it's about 670, and at this point on a Tuesday in the middle of the day, it's at 365.
0: And that's too cool for our pita baking, So we took the dough on a short walk up the hill to the house where Eric and his family live. We'll bake the pitas in Eric's regular home oven. You might hear his youngest daughter, Ruth, in the background.
1: So we've got our balls of dough that have been resting for, oh, 30, 40 minutes. And I'm just taking them up off the wooden board or if you might just have them sitting on your table and put quite a bit of flour on them because you're gonna roll them thin and you to use up that flour quickly. And I start rolling with a rolling pin and I'm rotating frequently so that I can try to keep the shape nice and round. Of course, if you have ovals, no problem. <laughs> I'm just used to making things look round. And we want them to be about six to eight inches across, I think.
0: And those don't seem to be springing back that much.
1: No, and part of that is the spelt and because the spelt has that extensibility it where it will stretch easily and the rest they had a nice rest after rounding them if you try to roll them right away they definitely would okay we've got two pitas ready to go here
0: after rolling out the pitas he's placed them on what's called a pizza peel it's one of those large wooden paddle shaped tools with a long handle it makes it a lot easier to slide things like pizza or pita bread into a hot oven
1: I've preheated some fire bricks in the oven and you can use a pizza stone the same way i just happen to have fire bricks lying around from having built a brick oven and i preheated them at about 500 and now i've turned the oven down to 450. emulates a brick oven because in, a, in, a, in our wood-fired oven the bricks are the heat source so the air is always a little cooler than the bricks mm. so here we go sliding them on closing the door
0: and then on the peel, you had a little bit of rice flour, yes. but you could use cornmeal or something. Or you, you can, recommend?
1: I really like rice flour on a peel. I think it's more effective than regular flour or cornmeal, um, and it also burns at a higher temperature than cornmeal and wheat.
0: So you don't get that smoky.
1: You don't get as much. Depends how hot your oven is. <laughs> <laughs> our our bread oven is about six hundred and seventy when we start baking bread on Friday nights. So. <laughs>
0: Making pita is a fun thing to do with kids, or really with anyone who hasn't lost their sense of wonder. After a few minutes in the hot oven, they begin to puff up as the signature pocket fills with steam. With an oven light and a window, it happens right before your eyes, like a time-lapse video. But it's real time. It's quite magical.
1: All right, I'm going to crack open the door, and it looks like they started to inflate, turning into little balloons in there. So we're gonna just uh, make sure the bottoms get a little bit brown, which they're not yet, and then we'll flip them over.
0: This is a small flatbread, so it doesn't take long.
1: All right, I'm gonna flip these pitas over. I think it's easier with a spatula than uh, using the peel. There we go. I popped them too.
0: (laughs) now they're deflating. As always, we'll have this recipe available on our website, eartheats.org. All
1: right, so the first two pitas are done. We're taking them out, and I like to cool them on a plate with a towel. And so you make a stack of pitas, and as you're taking them out and making the stack bigger in between each batch, you bring the towel over it to cover it so that they stay moist and warm and soft.
0: And that is how you make pita. Each batch only takes a few minutes to bake. You can make a whole stack of them for dinner, and the extras keep nicely in a plastic bag for lunch the next day. Next up, we'll share a recipe for what to put inside your pita pockets. Eric will show us how easy it is to make your own falafel from scratch. It's a lot simpler than it sounds. Stay with us.
2: Food news each week. Subscribe to the Earth Eats Digest. It's a weekly note packed with food stories and recipes right in your inbox. Go to eartheats.org to sign up.
0: If you have ever made falafel at home, you've likely started with a box mix. That was before you learned how easy it is to make it from scratch with chickpeas. And it doesn't require hours and hours of cooking beans on the stove. You don't even have to break out your pressure cooker. Falafel is a vegetarian dish with origins in the Middle East. Israelis and Palestinians have been arguing over who gets to claim falafel as their own, but the spicy fried bean nuggets most likely originated in Egypt. They are sometimes made with fava beans, but chickpeas are also common. Eric Shedler of Muddy Fork Bakery shares how he makes falafel with chickpeas that have been soaked overnight.
1: So, we're going to make some falafel to eat with our spelt pitas, and we're going to do it all in this food processor. It's really simple, classic recipe. So, I need half of an onion and a few cloves of garlic. I'm going to chop them up in there, and then you use soaked but not cooked chickpeas. Okay, just gonna chop it in a few pieces before I put it in the food processor. Just Mm. smash your garlic when you peel it. Pour the garlic in.
0: (laughs) So how many cloves of garlic did you put in there?
1: Four. Whenever a recipe says two to four, (laughs) I'm always at four or five. All right, now we're going to put in the uh, parsley and cilantro that we got in the greenhouse. Probably more than... A recipe would call for, but you can never put too many fresh herbs in your cooking.
0: When you have a greenhouse on site like they do out at Muddy Fork, you can have fresh herbs year-round.
1: All right, we're going to chop up those herbs, onions, and garlic before we add the chickpeas. Mm, I smell the cilantro. Mm-hmm. So this is half a pound of chickpeas, half a pound dry, and then soaked overnight. All right, got half the chickpeas in there because my food processor can't hold them all. Should look about the texture of bulgur when it's chopped enough put this in a bowl and then process
0: the other half of the piece.
1: Oh, it smells incredible. Alright, so I tried to mix the two batches together. I'm going to taste a little bit of it even though it's got not cooked beans in it because I soaked the beans in salt water and I don't know if it has enough salt. I think it needs a little more. I put my other teaspoon of cumin in, too. Then after mixing, you're supposed to let the falafel mix chill for a while. I think it's supposed to make it easier to form balls that will hold together.
0: Okay. After the mixture has had a chance to rest, Form it into balls or small discs, about an inch or two around.
1: So whenever you're going to fry, you want to be prepared. You have a place where the finished food is going to go. In this case, it's a plate with some paper towel on it. You have your oil with a thermometer in it, so that you get it to the right temperature, which is usually between, for most foods, between 350 and 375. And a slotted spoon for taking things in and out of the oil. And here we go, we're going to roll a few balls and. Throw them in. Try to squeeze it together so it holds. There we go. The temperature dropped a lot. Manage your pot of oil go. Keep adjusting
0: the flame. Mm-hmm. Those are perfect.
6: <laughs> <laughs>
0: the falafel is done when it's golden brown all around. Remove them with the slotted spoon and place them on a paper towel to drain. Each batch only takes a couple of minutes to cook, and surprisingly, they absorb very little oil. Walking us through the steps was Eric Shedler of Muddy Fork Bakery. Falafel is the ideal filling for his spelt pita bread. You can find the recipe for the falafel and the pita at eartheats.org. That's it for our show this week. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time.
2: EarthEats team includes Aobon Binder, Spencer Bowman, Mark Chilla, Toby Foster, Abraham Hill, Peyton Knoblek, Josephine McRobbie, Harvest Public Media, and me, Renee Reed.
0: Special thanks this week to Ryan McGuire, Alex Chambers, Andrea Wiley, Krista Vorl, and Eric Shedler.
2: Our theme music is composed by Aaron Toby and performed by Aaron and Matt Toby. Additional music on the show comes to us from Toby Foster and from the artists at Universal Productions Music. EarthEats is produced and edited by Kate Young, and our executive producer is John Bailey.